my default mode is I have dealt with anxiety my whole life. I have general anxiety disorder. I also have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Those aren't friendly words, but those are accurate representations of what happens with my neurotype. So I don't have a problem with them. I don't find them pejorative. I find them helpful. And so for me, I have to be very proactive with myself and emotional regulation to be well. The other thing about it is my anxiety when it's well managed and my attention deficit when it's well managed is an unbelievable set of assets. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Globe Podcast. My guest today is Jason Crandall. He's a celebrated yoga teacher who has traveled extensively hosting teacher trainings and conferences around the world. I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with Jason since 2010 when we started creating his classes for GLOW. With the pandemic, his teachings have become even more accessible online, where he's now offering teacher training mentorships in multiple languages. One thing that makes Jason so relatable is his willingness to be vulnerable. He shares how he navigates anxiety. We discuss the meaning of yoga, the utility of philosophy and movement as both method and goal to help regulate the nervous system and explore consciousness. We also discuss his efforts to bring more voices to the table and how hearing more diverse opinions strengthens our understanding of yoga and its philosophies. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason. Hey, Jason, great to see you. Uh, really good to see you, Derek. It's been a few minutes. It has been a few minutes. I can't remember when we saw each other last in person. Uh, me neither, like but at least I'm willing to ago. put money on the fact that it's been more than one year. I would put money on that fact as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we've known each other for a long time as well. Before we jumped on just now, I searched my email to go back to see when this all started. And I think I flew up to take your class in early 2010 in San Francisco. I think that's how we met. That makes sense because I was wondering how long I've been on GLOW, um, but I'm figuring it's been around 10 years, mm -hmm. you know, because even those, even though when I was thinking about the courses and when I recorded the courses for GLOW, um, <clears throat> it's been at least seven or eight years on that. Yeah. So yeah, some time has elapsed. It's been some time and it truly has been a pleasure working with you all these years. And I know our team feels the same. I appreciate it. You've just always been a joy to work with. Thank you. All right, let's, let's do a, a brief background on your story as a starting point. And sure. I'd love to get into how you started teaching yoga. What led you to teach yoga? Let's start there. Yeah, you know, okay, so I think my drive to be an educator by far predates my drive to be an educator of yoga. I think really since the time I was a kid, I, I'm pretty introverted, but if you hit the right button in me, I will start talking about something and not stop talking about that thing. Um, I've also always had ADHD. So one of the things that most people don't know about ADHD is when you hook someone who has an ADHD neurotype 
into what they can focus on, they can focus on it better than most people can focus on it. So for me, I've always loved to hook into points of interest and to talk about those points of interest and to like show and teach things that I know. And so I think for many years growing up, like I thought I would be a hockey coach, right? Because I played hockey and then I got a little older and I thought, oh, I really like writing. So I think maybe I'll be an English teacher. And then I got a little older and I got interested in philosophy and I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a philosophy teacher. Then I got a little bit older and I got interested in global politics and international relations. And I thought, oh, I will teach one of those subjects. Then long story made short, when I was in college, I got my first exposure to the yoga practice, specifically asana and breath work. It was not an easy go. It was a really hard transition. But as a student, I was studying philosophy, but I was studying Western empiricism. And there's a certain irony, which is I didn't really take on that well to Eastern philosophy. But when I experienced the yoga practice, even though it was super hard, every time I left class, I felt way better. So I, I was like an empirical thing, right? It was like doing this thing just worked. And so I just started practicing yoga much more consistently. And I thought, oh, maybe I will be a teacher of this thing. So that's really been the, that's really been the evolution. And I started teaching a little bit here and there in 1997. Um, and then I did an actual two-year training starting in 2000. But I, but I was teaching more or less full-time prior to starting that. Um, and then I've just continued to grow and evolve and iterate and do what makes me happy to do. What was it about the empiricism that hooked you? It, 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 uh, it was regulating for me. So I've been thinking about this a lot lately, which is I don't think... <sighs> I don't think even contemporary asana, I don't think its strongest suit is how it affects the musculoskeletal system. I think its strongest suit is how it affects and regulates the nervous system and titrates the psyche. So I think that's really always been yoga's primary emphasis is not so much the muscular skeletal system. It has always been about the body, by the way, because it's always been sensory because the mind is the psyche is part of the body within that uh, within those traditional worldviews. So yoga has always been about the body, but it's not necessarily been about the musculoskeletal part of the body. It's been about consciousness and what affects consciousness within the human system, right? So I feel like yoga, it wasn't, it wasn't that it made me stronger and more flexible. That took a long time. And also I was an athlete, so I was already strong. Um, but it was the way I felt mentally and emotionally regulated after having done that practice. Now that regulation slipped away pretty quick, but it was there for a moment. Right. Yeah, and what's really interesting now is the intuitive and the empirical are, are merging in ways yeah. that are, are quite fulfilling and enjoying. You know, I, for example, I'm, I'm a fan of Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Antonio Damasio. For example, Dan Siegel you know, is showing quite extensively that the mind is not just a brain function, but that it's a brain body function. And, and I love sure. his def definition, which is the mind can be defined as an embodied and relational 
emergent and self-organizing process that regulates the flow of energy and information both within us and between us. And Damasio, my favorite topic of his is the homeostatic imperative, but for the purpose of this particular conversation, like he notes that as we evolve, the gut might as well have been the very first brain. And so the fact that you're tapped into in your own subject of, of one uh, empirical experience of the somatic and that being your pathway towards emotional regulation um, yeah, is converging with science. And obviously sure. humans have known this for a very long time through intuition and feeling. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's a fun time now to uh, have that as your profession you know, since all of these, all of these disciplines are, are merging and converging. Yeah, I think, I think we're in a, a phase of world evolution where certain things are just, they're easier to measure, you know? And so many of these intrinsic relationships, they're just, that have, that have been spoken about, whether as the Vedas, whether it's in the Upanishads, whether it was in, you know, Hatha yogis, whether it was Patanjali-based yogis, so many of these dynamics have been discussed. I mean, they've been discussed differently. Those are all different modalities. But um, now some of those things are just, they're a little bit easier to measure. And we, we tend in our modern lives to like things that are more overtly measurable um, and seemingly more objective. Right. And be careful what you measure because that is what you will follow. <laughs> yeah. And measure sure. yourself against. and. It's a big time, big time. I'm so curious as a philosophy major, the first time you came across or, or were exposed to this four letter word yoga, what was your mm. initial experience of it? And do you remember which text it was? Yeah, it was the Bhagavad Gita and it was in the context of social justice and it's not a glowing assessment. So, so like whatever, Anything that you read, if you read it through a certain prism or a certain perspective, it's going to color the experience of that thing, especially when you have a text that is so old, right? And it's been interpreted so many different times in so many different ways. So although my study was in Western empiricism and political philosophy, pretty like radically leftist political philosophy at that time, um, I studied mostly uh, mostly leftist activism and revolutionary movements and the study was about gandhian nonviolence and the bhagavad gita and the the way in which the bhagavad gita is a very complex thing to read because um, it is an intrinsic unbelievably important component of hinduism there are incredibly valuable things to take from it. And looking at it through the lens of social justice, it pretty clearly lays the rationale for the caste system, um, which not many people with my mindset are a super big fan of. Um, so I was not a fan, to be honest. It's not that yoga and the Bhagavad Gita cannot be equated to each other, although there are strong parallels and uh, influences there. But yeah, it was something that to me, I accessed through a social justice lens and I accessed it through um, seeing a worldview that 
had no upward or even lateral mobility, uh, and and uh, through a worldview that never really thought people should be um, born into their station in life in perpetuity. So you know, my first exposure was not great. Now I love it. I don't love the caste system, uh, but now I can see now I can see that text. I can see it and utilize it um, in a in a different way. Do you have a favorite translation? Yeah, anything that Eknoth Eshwaran, so his last name is E-A-S-W-A-R-A-N. Um, he's interpreted a bunch of different things, but his his translation of the Gita, I don't know what it's I don't know what it's called. Um, I think it's so good. In fact, even just the intro paragraph, you know, what what he does what I strive to do, which is to take complex concepts and teach them in simple ways without in any way diluting them. Um, and so his, he's a, he's a really, it's a really great translation, especially for the layperson. And I, I'm the layperson. I mean, I've studied yoga for a long time, but still in terms of studying yoga philosophy, I am not a scholar. I'm a student of scholars. But I, I, I don't do original work. I'll put it that way. I haven't read that one. I have to check that one out. One of my favorites at the moment is Dr. Douglas Brooks's translation. He likes to refer to the conversation between Krishna and Arjuna as a conversation between Arjuna and his shadow. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the titration of the psyche. Do you use that word deliberately, psyche, like your practice being a titration of your psyche? Yeah. Can you can you unpack that? Yeah. That that sure. word, you know, depending on where you've gone in terms of your inner work, uh, you know, that can mean lots of different things to different people. So there are many different f components of psyche. Mind is one of the components of psyche. For me, I am an interventionist. So what I mean by that, I am an interventionist with myself. Meaning by that is my nature is not well regulated. My nature is not that biochemically stable. My nature, or maybe not my nature, like that's kind of complicated, but my, let me say not my nature. Let me say my default. My default. My default mode is I have dealt with anxiety my whole life. I have general anxiety disorder. Um, I also have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, those aren't friendly words, but those are accurate representations of what happens with my neurotype. So I don't have a problem with them. I don't find them pejorative. I find them helpful. Um, and so for me, I have to be very proactive with myself and emotional regulation to be well. The other thing about it is my anxiety when it's well managed and my attention deficit when it's well managed is an unbelievable set of assets because like i said i can focus i can tune in i can hone in and block things out when i'm actually um, to do what i am to do i can do it exceptionally well and i don't know that i'd be able to do that if i had a different neurotype if i was a little bit more uh, if my default mode was a little bit more regulated so to me personally, 
I have always used the various practices of yoga to stabilize what is a not particularly stable mind and nervous system. So that's what I mean. And to me, it's, it's, you know, it's chemical, it's biochemical. It's also electrical. So I just think about the word, I, the reason I use titration of the psyche is like doing the various things that help my biochemistry work in a way that I want them to work, mm-hmm. right? Just in a, literally in a way of being in this world for 46 years now. Um, I'm totally into avoiding future suffering and being well. And so for me, that takes a lot of daily work. And I don't, and it's not even like, it's not even like I'm trying to change the essence of who I am. I think it's unchangeable. Um, But what I'm doing is like, I'm a better manager of who I am. And I'm pretty happy about that. Like I want, I want all the components of me just to be working well. Yeah. So there's a regular maintenance component. Is there also a component where you'll notice something coming on like a greater intensity or a a going to pieces or an overwhelm moment where you'll then do something other than your regular maintenance? Is that how that works for you? Or is it you've got your set routine and you stick with that and you're generally pretty well regulated? That one. Okay. Yeah. So I am, I am fortunate in that even though I have an anxiety disorder and I have ADHD, man, there's much more complicated burdens than that. I don't have mania. I don't suffer depression. There's so many other things that, that, and, and every, and also everything that I, um, I am able to manage and regulate myself pretty well. I'm a pretty like super high functioning person, but what I have learned over the years is I can't skip my routine or the wheels come off pretty quickly. So, you know, like you said at the beginning, we've known each other for a long time and I have spent as long as we've known each other, except for this last year because of COVID, on the road nonstop, nonstop. But so what do I do when I get off an airplane? I go work out and then I have a healthy meal and then I hydrate and then I teach. And then, you know what I mean? So like it used to be when I was a little bit younger and I would travel to London to teach, I'd be like out, like walking around town, like doing all these things, going to the sites, hanging out with people. Uh, uh-uh, uh, Not anymore. It's like anywhere I go, it might sound sad, but to me, it's not sad because I've been those places anyways. But like anywhere I go, I do what I can do to recreate the steadying, anchoring rituals that I have. And I think a, a component of that too, you know, is I'm not just responsible for myself anymore, right? So I got a kid and a wife and most intensely, a little dog named Ginger Rose. But no, it's like I feel like a responsibility to make sure I'm doing what I can do to maximally stabilize who I am so that I'm there for people. It's like you running, it's like you running glow and, and being in a relationship. You know, we... You can't like uh, you can't run the risk of longer term dysregulation and still be an effective leader. No, I certainly know what that's like when the wheels come off. It's not yeah, it's not uh, helpful to myself nor to others. And that can look like lots of different things. I don't know if there's something that looks like to you when the wheels come off. 
It's more internalized. So I don't think most people would know it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, and it's the way that like everyone has always, like I come, the way I come across is in fact who I am, but how I am perceived and what's actually happening on the inside, those aren't always the same thing. And so the way that I am perceived usually is like super grounded, chill, whatever. On the inside, there's a lot of work that goes on in that. And, and what I appreciate about you, at least in my experience with you and our relationship when the wheels have come off with respect to anything that we're doing together. You get a call. I get a call or a text and we talk yep. through it yep. and we talk through yep. the nuance the, yep. the and have whatever conversation may be difficult to have. And then that's the regulation. That's, that's part of the titration yep. of the movement of, of psyche in that moment. Big time. So I am, I just want to say, I really appreciate that. Totally. So here's the thing about me is like, I've gotten to know I am so good at overreacting. Like I can pretty much win an overreaction contest any day of my life. So, and the other thing is like, I'm not good at compartmentalizing once I get upset. Right. So I'll fixate on it. Right. So if there's an issue and it rattles me in some way, or just a concern that I have, I kind of have to have it out. I have to have that conversation. And it's one of the reasons too, why I don't have many relationships, including personal or professional relationships, but the relationships that I have are very transparent. They're very complete and they're very um, communicative and healthy because I can't, I can't, I can't not like, I would just not have the relationship. I'll put it this way. When I have any kind of turbulence, I have to deal with it. Same. Yeah. I can't not. Yeah. And if that person isn't willing or interested or curious, I can't have that person in my life. No, at least not for too long. Yeah. There's a period of course, where we need time to work through things and establish our own understanding of where our values lie with respect to the thing. But, uh, yeah, for me that I, I need that, that processing of the emotion and the feelings. Totally. I'm also, you know, for me personally, like if I have a conflict and I'm left to my own devices, I will only make it worse. But if I actually have a conversation with someone or address it, then I get over it really quick. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't, I don't harbor. Once I can like, once I can communicate, Hey, there's a, there's a splinter here or I have a concern about something. It dissipates really quickly. I get over stuff really quickly when there is a, when it's addressed, when it isn't addressed, it gets internally very stressful very quickly. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So much of our conversation so far and so much of your teaching is centered around anchored by the somatic. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this really unique combination of you as a teacher in terms of philosophy and your experience of philosophy and everything you just mentioned about your own, ex your own inner visceral experience of what it means to be you. And something that I really appreciate about you is you're not in your teaching as a teacher, you're, you're not trying to convince anyone to follow you. 
no, or become no. dependent upon you or present one type of lineage or teaching or perspective as having supremacy over another, you're truly inviting your students down a path along an experience of their own body so they can connect more deeply with their own feelings and emotions. And, you know, we know that so much of our inner life starts with feelings and emotions, you know, thoughts, behaviors, actions, then follow. And that's so much opportunity for change can really happen at the level of the somatic. And, you know, by growing our awareness of feelings and body sensations and states. And, you know, I think that's, as I mentioned, that's always front and center in your teaching or conveyed more subtly through you. And that's really part of your art and part of your gift. And I think part of why so many people resonate with you. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's correct. You know, I, for whatever reason, in addition to the other kind of neural patterning that my genetic code has, I'm also just contrarian and I'm, and I'm also good at seeing big pictures. So this isn't to say that I dismiss any singular school of yoga. It's that I'm not a true believer and I'm not an adherent to any single pathway. I'm just not. And I'm not saying that others shouldn't be. I think ultimately you're looking for something that works with this incarnation of who you are. But a thing that does not work for me is to be, I'm very independent minded. You know what I mean? And so when I start to come across situations that seem to be teaching X just simply to perpetuate the belief within that system, I, I just can't, I just can't do it. And I've, I'm not a huge conformist. Um, and yet at the same time, I think the other thing, oh, I'll tell you the story. So um, the, I have a, one of my primary teachers, although I have not seen her or worked with her in 20 years, but one of the primary teachers of my teacher training program was a teacher named Mary Paffard. Um, she was exceptional, right? And she's British, had great British wit. And she says, you know, I won't, I won't make people suffer by trying to do her accent. She said, you know, people, and this was in 2000, right? So, you know, people are always asking me, what kind of yoga do you teach? What kind of yoga do you teach? And she finally said, you know, not, I just teach pirate yoga. And they say, what? <laughs> and she says, I steal all the jewels and I take everything I think is junk and I throw it overboard. And I know that that is not the perspective for everyone. Mm -hmm. I know that people like codified and contained worldviews. Mm -hmm. I get it. Mm -hmm. Because those codified and contained worldviews, they give you organization, they give you order, they give you a sense of place. And those are necessary things for everyone. Mm -hmm. But there just hasn't ever been a single modality um, that has been so complete and registered with me so primarily that I could just be an adherent to that modality. I think the last thing is deeply rooted in the yoga tradition is self-inquiry. And so I'm not, I'm not mainly trying to learn what you know. I'm mainly trying to learn what you know to help me inquire and figure out what I know. And that means I'm not going to be like, a student, I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to teach Derek Mills yoga. I'm not. 
this is not going to happen. And, and similarly, I don't want people to do that with me. Which there is none, by the way. So our listeners don't think there is a Derek Mills yoga. There never, oh, and there no, never no, will, there is not. And there never will be for the same, no. con, for the same contrarian reasons Jason mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. S speaking of what, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens comes to mind. I don't know if you ever read mm -hmm. letters to a young contrarian. Yeah. Yeah. Where did the contrarian you come from? Where did it originate? You know, this is so weird. And I, because I think, I think this will end up like getting us in the topic of race and class and culture and privilege. But I grew up really like I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in a suburb of Toledo, Ohio called Sylvania straight across the board, middle-class straight across the board, pretty white. Um, and not, not really diverse in any way, including faith-based systems. Like pretty much everyone was like a Protestant or a Catholic, but in Sylvania, Ohio, the Protestants and the Catholics, they're not at war. You know what I mean? So really it's just kind of waspy. I, I don't want to say that I didn't fit in. Like I am a white waspy guy, but in terms of my interests, I never fit in. I grew up skateboarding. I grew up listening to hardcore. I grew up listening to punk rock. My brother, who was still is eight years ago, became a cocaine addict at 15. So I was seven. So like, I remember just living a weird life. Like I had a lot of intense exposure to different kind of non-waspy things. Maybe being a cocaine addict, that's actually a waspy thing. I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like I just, my interests weren't there. My interests weren't in, you know, playing football and going to get chicken wings and then having a few beers. Like it just wasn't my interest. You weren't the typical guy's guy. No, I was, I skateboarded. You know what I mean? You so, had your feet in, and, in lots and of different camps. It like, like, like you weren't, what's that? you had your feet in lots of different camps. You weren't part of that. You weren't fully a part of that group. You weren't fully a part of that other group. Is that totally, totally. And I, you know, I don't know real socioeconomic struggle. I don't. When I was, uh, and the thing to explain too, is like, it, it can't actually be underestimated growing up in the 70s and early 80s in the Midwest as a skateboarder, you were an outsider. And every Friday and Saturday night, you were chased, you were arrested, or you were in a fight every single weekend. My, so it was like, I never wanted to, I just, and I always knew I wanted to get out. I wanted to get out of there. I really appreciate that world, not that world, but I really appreciate where I grew up now and I like going back. But I just always felt like an outsider. Um, both my family was an outsider because of my brother. Um, and then I just felt like an outsider because of my actual interests and uh, the way that my brain worked. Like school didn't really work that well for me. So I've never known true outsider status. But as far as like being like a white privileged male in a white privileged world, I was more of an outsider. Yeah, I get that. And how is it that being more of an outsider in that regard maybe shows up in your teacher training? Do you address the forces of privilege, race, and whiteness? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely integrated. I think if I- you know, like to, Racialized identity in general and how that might also 
play a factor in the both the teacher student dynamic within the yoga studio dynamic? Yeah, I think um, I think the most I think one of the things that I have been reflecting on and talking a lot about in the context of my life and these trainings is just this idea of who gets a seat at the table, right? Who gets a seat at the table? Who gets to have their voice heard? And not only who gets to see, have a seat at the table, but if someone doesn't get a seat at the table, why? And is it because they personally have, uh, whether or not some, uh, whether or not there is a systemic and inherited reason why that person has, doesn't have a seat at the, ta the table, right? And, you know, one of the things I've also reflected on, and again, this is so small, like this is so small, but like, I grew up, as I was saying, contrarian as an outsider with a big chip on my shoulder. And I was never systemically or structurally marginalized. Never. I was just, I was just into things that other people weren't, but like, you know what I mean? So I just know how difficult that was for me. I can't imagine having a historical legacy and a present systemic um, ways by which I'm marginalized. You know what I mean? Like I, I can't, I can't, I don't even try to, I don't even try to put myself in that position because I know that I can't know. What I feel like I can do um, as a teacher is to make sure as many different people have a seat at the table as possible, right? One of the things too in all of my trainings that we start with is we actually start with the first reading in all my trainings we do is a John Stuart Mill uh, reading uh, on liberty. And in On Liberty, he talks about uh, viewpoint diversity. So th that's where we start. We start about viewpoint diversity because that is another component that when we have teacher training programs, we need to understand how do we get more voices at the table? How do we need get more seats at the table? How do we have more multiplicity and inclusivity? And also, how do we have more people with more worldviews? You know what I mean? How do we have someone in my training that has a yin background and is going to maybe say to me, hey, you know what? This whole thing that you're talking about, engaging in end range, I have another perspective on this. I no. need to listen to that. You know no. what I mean? I can't say, no, 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 that's wrong, blah, 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 blah. I can say, okay, let's have a discussion. Nice. I might not agree, but this discussion, we can have it, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm, I'm continuing to do what I can do to make sure various people with um, not just race, class, gender uh, diversity, but neurotype diversity and worldview diversity. I mean, neurotype diversity is a massive, massive, massive thing. And you got a, a lot of people in my trainings that um, they have, uh, they're, they're somewhere on a spectrum or like me, they have ADHD or they don't have like a neurotype challenge, but they're super introverted in groups. So I have to figure out how do I make sure everyone here is seen and heard? How do you support that intention so that it scales? So a couple of things. One of the things that we do um, is I have mentors in all of my programs now. 
So I have mentors that have graduated. The, those mentors are, the BIPOC community is strongly represented in that mentor group. Uh, it will continue to be represented more and more so over the years. Another thing that mentors do in addition to being, uh, in addition to representing a multiplicity of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and more, um, is we have different communication pathways. So for people that don't feel comfortable in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, they can email the mentor and let them know, hey, I have a question about A, B, C, D, or E, or I'm feeling X, Y, and Z. The other thing that they have access to is small groups, right? So groups of 15 to 20 people in order to get together and talk about the content and what's happening in lives. So it's kind of like a smaller breakout session. That is then combined with the different educational strategies that I provide. So written, visual, recorded, live. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to access people in many different ways. So at least one of those ways works with who they are. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, and you know the thing too is like the internet just makes it easier mm. because because there's so many more ways that we can actually get together. And the, in the in the like, I never had when all of the trainings were in person, I couldn't afford to fly out mentors for a hundred hours pay them i'm paying them now like of course i'm paying everyone that works with me but like i couldn't i it didn't scale to have those mentors come to one place but now that people can work distantly I, we also my trainings are in english but we have um spanish and portuguese and soon mandarin nice. mentor mentors not meant they're not mandarin mentors. you know what i mean yeah. people know what i mean so um People that are non-native English speakers or whose English is their second language, if they want to ask Yeli or Kati a question in Portuguese or in Spanish, because some things can, some things just, it's just going to be communicated easier in a first language, right? Mm -hmm. So we have access to that, right? So it's just, it's, having you you know this Derek you know this from from what I've always seen with you and glow in in glow you you never move quickly because you always take time to hire the right people you know it's like something that I have I have really seen from from you over the years and of course there's change here and there but um I feel like I have really good people helping out with this yeah that's a, a gift that you've identified the importance of that and that you follow through on that. And you know, when you're very busy and putting out fires, you know, it can be tempting to let that slide, but that is one thing totally. that you just, you cannot, you cannot slide. You just have to make space for that. And wow. You know how powerful, I mean, I can only imagine it makes me want to take your teacher training and experience these mentors I'll give you, that you I'll have give you $10 off. <laughs> these mentors are a dollar, a dollar for every year. <laughs> oh, $12 off. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's, uh, 
That's very, very anytime. I like to show my generosity as often as possible. That's very generous of you. All right. So earlier I asked you about the word yoga and uh, you mentioned that it is referred to and dealt with in, in a variety of texts over millennia yeah. and that uh, it has so many different meanings and depending on how it's used can ultimately mean and convey lots of different things. Do you tend to work with a specific definition of yoga? For example, if someone who is new or, or hasn't been exposed to the many sources you've been exposed to, is there a working definition of yoga that you use? It's such a good question, right? And I'm, I'm thinking about, um, so there is an academic who wrote a couple of books. Uh, her first book is called Selling Yoga. Her, her name is Andrea Jane. Uh, and I have her come on to my teacher training program and, and we have some conversations and, and, I, th and that's a required reading. And she has this phrase in there that, that is, there is no such thing as yoga. There are only yogas. Right. And it's really interesting. And you, you, I mean, you frame that so well, right? I love that. Um, Dave, right. David Gordon White points out there is no single word in the Sanskrit lexicon that has more meanings than the word yoga. So when we say what is yoga, we know it's subjective, right? We, we know enough to know that this is a subjective thing. So for me, the way I think about it is, and this kind of goes back to your response earlier that, um, that I route things through the soma, that I'm somatic. For me, yoga is a sensory event. It's a sensory experience. It's not cognitive, it's not intellectual. Um, it is a sensory experience of equilibrium. That, that's, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like when everything is relaxed, steady, and stable. That to me is a, an integrated, that is a sensory experience. If I were to be like maybe a little bit more intellectual about it, I'd say to, to me personally, yoga is a method of regulating the mind body complex. Like it's just a method, right? So it's, and Richard Rosen points out, like he's so brilliant, right? He points out it's both a method and an outcome. So he calls yoga un the union method, right? He just kind of puts in this idea that it is the thing you do and it is the outcome that you receive. It's both the, the noun and the verb, if you will, right? So for me, it's sensory. It's when I feel good, stable, grounded. And, um, and, I, and I suppose when I feel good, stable, and grounded and not and not in a completely self-centered way, but in a way that feels integrated um, with the people in the world around me. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that last bit because it's, it's the inner and the outer. It's the yeah. experience that you're having inwardly that extends and bumps into the world and how you interact with the world, which creates that feedback yeah. loop in terms of yeah. the, the regulation that you're trying to both achieve and be within. I like that. Yeah. You're often referred to as the teacher's teacher. How do you feel about that? Um, I'll take it. 
I think I'm a really good teacher of teachers, but I would probably get rid of the word the and put a, because there's all, all sorts of other really good teachers of teachers. Um, although I'll, I'll keep the the for self-aggrandizing reasons. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to just tell people what to do. I want them to understand why, why I do what we do so that they can understand like the mechanism so that they can make their own choices. Right. So it's kind of like, I don't like if I were teaching, if I were teaching, let's say, um, piano. Oh, by the way, I should not pick, I, I've never played piano. So I'd be a remarkably bad piano teacher, but let's say I was a piano virtuoso. I don't think I would mostly just want you to learn songs from me, right? To like memorize and repeat songs. That would be part of it. Um, but I'd want you to learn the theory. I'd want you to learn the concepts. I'd want you to learn all sorts of various specific techniques. I'd want you to have a broad exposure to other composers. And I'd want to be giving you the skills so that if you want to play someone's song, you can play someone's song. But if you want to write your own, you can write your own. So my, my goal is to kind of like parenting in a way is to give people the support and the scaffolding and the tools to eventually make me appreciated, but not as relevant. I like that. Like any good professor. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is too, is like, I, I think about this is like what it takes, the time it takes me to learn something is going to be a lot more than the time it takes you to learn that thing from me. Right. It's one of the reasons like we continue to progress. Right. So whoever like invented the wheel. Right. Like it took a long time to figure that out. But then once that's taught, it's like, oh, yeah, that's pretty easy. You just do this. So it's not I mean, I think that I have a pretty deep wealth of knowledge. But, dude, it's not going to take you 26 years to learn it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It might have taken me 26 years to kind of get to my understanding of things. But I should be able to communicate it to you in such a way that you're probably going to get most of what you're going to get from me in a couple of years, a consistent study. And then probably you want to go somewhere else for a little while. And maybe I've figured out another thing or two and you can come back. But if I'm, if I'm good enough at my job, I should be making, I should be, Rodney used to say to this, Rodney, so one of my primary teachers and strongest influence, um, he used to say, you know, as a student, you should be standing on my shoulders, period. You know what I mean? So that that's that's always the way that's always the way I feel is like I don't want to become irrelevant, God forsake, but I don't think that like I'm not trying to create a commune in which I am like the lead master. Yeah, another thing that I have noticed and felt about you over the years is that your passion for teaching students and teaching soon to be teachers has never waned it's only no. grown and it, it yeah you're you're constantly pushing yourself to grow and expand and learn new ways of exercising and delivering your craft totally what, what, what yeah 100 percent. like what i'm not that? a fashion designer i don't want to like i don't want to sell you like a you know like a box of coconuts or something you know what i mean like i don't want to sell you a third party thing I don't have a problem with that, but 
like I, I'm, I can't, I can't take my time doing something that I genuinely don't care about. And I have a lot of personal interests. Like I love reading. I love volunteering at the dog shelter. I love taking my daughter to ride horseback. I love to learn and grow, but man, I know what my, I know what my subject matter specialization is and I love it. That isn't to say every day I want to go to work, you know what I mean? But I, I think I'm fortunate enough to have found a subject matter that is so unfathomably vast that I don't know, like I will never, I will never like get to the bottom of the well of being a yoga teacher. So I'm not, I'm not trying to do something else. Not, not until, not until like, you know, I have no other students left. And if it comes to that, I will figure something out. Yeah. But until then, which I don't see, we're good. I don't see that happening anytime soon. You mentioned you love to read. What are you reading right now? That's gripping you. That's pulling on your heart. Oh, I try to stay away from things that pull on my heart. So this is <laughs> just turn the brain um, off. So I want to say, like, I am. I I read like kind of two or three categories. Okay. okay? So one category is of the yoga vedanta upanishad buddhist milieu and that's that's more like research you know what i mean like that's more i won't say it's not pleasurable it's very pleasurable it's very stimulating but i do it for work i do it to make sure that um i make fewer and fewer mistakes every day in terms of how i educate people um, but in terms of my reading, reading novels, dude, I, and, and, and the, like, I don't want turgid dramas, like being, I got enough. I have like enough emotional landscape to deal with. My reading is mostly escapism. And so, uh, there's this, I'm reading, a. um, he's Scottish. He's of Indian descent. Uh, and he has a series of like detective-based thrillers that are set in uh, Calcutta in the early 1900s. Um, and they're super fun, they're really good. His name is like Amir, and his his last name starts with an M. Anyways. All right, well, we'll find super it. Super We'll find it, we'll super put it. We'll find his name yeah, and put it in the show notes. Yeah, the first one in the series is called A Rising Man. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't need like, I saw the other day, like Kazuo Ishiguro, like published a new novel. I'm like, dude, I'm done. I don't need to read. Like I slog through the remains of the day. I'm done. I'm over with that. I'm not in grad school. I'm just going to like <laughs> essentially read Robert Ludlum books. Right. I guess you don't want anyone snapping a photo of you uh, sitting on the airplane, reading something that isn't serious, <laughs> right? <laughs> totally that would i would be yeah so anyways that's I, i'm sure that's my own <laughs> ego of which i have plenty yeah i have that same uh complex running through me for sure yeah i have i have mostly i think being a parent has mostly got me rid of that complex just because life is beautiful and wonderful and like every day is complicated so when it comes to end of the day reading time man, I am, give me a plot, give me a plot and some character development and some joy and let's ride. All right. Last question, Jason. So when we met 
I had probably already disabled this feature, but we launched in November 2008 with a feature where you could choose from a little group of nonprofit partners that, that I had picked out. And part of the sign on process in creating the free trial account said that in yoga, you give to others by giving to yourself. And mm. so the goal was to ultimately, you know, through engagement with our platform, through taking classes and doing other things on our platform, that that would result in contributing to these nonprofits. And for a whole variety of reasons that I won't get into, I wasn't able to execute on it. And, you know, finally, uh, towards the end of this year, maybe more likely early next year, we're going to manifest that nice. for real and in, in a, an impactful, sustainable way. And we're just so excited about it because it really brings us full circle to how I wanted the glow experience in its totality to be along with some other experiences that I won't get into. And so that tie-in will be with helping our planet. And so my last question for you is, you know, how is the interconnectivity between your own self-care and care for our planet evident in your life or another way of thinking about it? In what ways do you connect with our planet and how have these connections deepened your desire to protect and preserve our environment? Um, I, I have this kind of like a dad joke to set the context, which is um, that I'm the indoorsy type, right? And I have been drawn to cities my whole life. I've been drawn to centers where there's a lot of people and industry and commerce. And I have just always loved the built environment. Like I love design. I love architecture. I didn't have kind of the mathematical ability to let me go in those directions, but I've always loved that. So I think that the, my relationship to the earth or my relationship to nature is there, but it's not, it's not as on my sleeve because to be honest, I just don't spend as much time in it. That said, my yoga practice has always been a modulating endeavor that has helped me see the need for regulation, for self-regulation, for sustainability. And I've also, not as much over recent years, but been involved in activist worlds. So seeing the need for those of us that can help to actually do something and help. I think all of this is a way of saying, I'm not super active when it comes to um, giving back to nature as such, but I do make all of the choices that I can make that are sane, that are regulated, that are grounded. Um, I don't think that we can live in California, especially through the last couple of years, without thinking, uh-oh, right? The car that I have is an electric car. I intend on getting a solar roof when I relocate before too long. Um, I will continue to do everything that I can do within my personal ability to make good environmental choices. But I also think that the, 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 not the flip side, but the other component of this is I don't, it doesn't really matter 
how many individual choices are made, there has to be the support of systemic policy, right? Like that, like supporting governments that enact strong policies on the environment need to be done. I can recycle, I can buy an electric car instead of a gas car. I can, you know, use fewer kilowatts per hour. I can use renewables. But man, those things are not even a drop in the bucket unless there is also um, some strong systemic advocacy uh, for stronger environmental positions, all of which I support. And also, you know, it's, it's, it's so, I mean, the thing about like getting back really briefly to the empiricism thing, we are not separate, <laughs> you know, like, like we aren't separate, man. If I'm, if I'm indoors filming for more than three days in a row and I'm not outside early and outside late, what starts to happen to me? Insomnia. My sleep schedule gets off. What starts to happen to me? I have more stress, more cortisol. What happens to me? I become dysregulated. Why? Because I wasn't in the sun at the right time. You know what I mean? So it's like these practices that help us remember that you, you aren't this separate node that is fully self-contained and functional. Like we are not self-contained functional entities. We just actually aren't. Um, we, we need that world out there as much as I like the world indoors, right? We need that world out there. Um, and arguably that world out there is going to be fine. Um, it will regulate itself. The question is whether or not, um, it will do with us on board or whether or not, it's just, it's like, it's going to be all right. It's just whether or not, is it going to buck us off first? Right. The atoms and the energy will still exist. But totally, we may not. We may not. <laughs> Jason, that's beautiful. Thank you. My pleasure, Derek. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you? Um, I can only be found in my home as of last year, <laughs> March. <laughs> so if they're looking for my physical entity, um, I will. I'm at home nearly every moment of my day. How about through ones and zeros uh, on the? Yeah. But online, you can find me on this new upstart yoga platform called Glow. Uh, they also have, I think, fitness instructors and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, check them out. They're, they're new. Their um, they're founder is a bright guy. Um, and then you can also find me at jasonyoga.com. And then you can also find me on Instagram, jason underscore crandall. That's it. Can we also plug Yoga Land? Yeah, you can find um, me. So my wife has a podcast called Yoga Land. It's super awesome. Her name is Andrea. And because she has no budget, I'm her guest all the time. I, I, I like work for free. Uh, but yeah, we have a really nice, we have a really nice uh, collaboration. I always have. So check out Yoga Land. It's really good. It's in my opinion, it's very successful. And, uh, totally you both, for sure. you both are, uh, great on it together. I mean, she's amazing on her own, but yeah, the, the, the band, yeah, it's fun. The it's, banter uh, and, and it, the camaraderie and the creativity that you both have spontaneously is, and the, the transparency is, 
it's helpful. Once in a while, we didn't realize that we were annoyed with each other. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it, like 99% of the time we have a great time. And then once in a while we get a little, um, you know, like, a, like a married couple, you realize, Oh, like they're a married couple and they've been together for a while. And they didn't know that they were kind of irritated until they started talking about like headstand and then somehow headstand brought out some deep seated annoyance. Yeah. That's with not having put the dishes away or something, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty fun gig. That's something that you and I have in common. We both work with our, our wives. My wife, Lisa, the, the chief impact officer for Glow. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very rewarding. I'm grateful. I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. I know we're wrapping up, but we just did this podcast to, to plug another one mm -hmm. um, with, uh, with an Indian couple, um, Archna and Deepak. They have a, they, she's been a student of mine for years and they have a podcast called um, yoga chai and a dog. And they started the podcast because they wanted to do a project together, you know? And I just thought like they had a project, they had two kids, but they're, but they're adults now. So the, po so the podcast was a project. It's just like a project to do together. Um, and I, and I really reflected on, I love working with Andrea and we're, we're really good at separating our roles, but it's really nice to have a project together. It's mm. a, it's otherwise you can live these kind of, uh, existences that are, you know, together, but not right. That's a whole episode in and of itself. It is. All right. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Jason. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at glow. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, Take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.